Hey, hey, hey! Guess who? Yep, I'm back everyone. It's Andy Roberts here, delivering a freshly baked nasty pasty extravaganza. While the world outside crumbles amongst Brexit cakes and Mexican walls, leave it all behind and tune in to a fun sojourn through the world of video nasty horror. You know that we don't cover the actual video nasties, of course. We just cover things that are very much like the nasties, that are virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. Mainly because there were no real guidelines to what actually constituted a video nasty back in the day anyway. The only prerequisites were having scenes that are really horrific, mutilations of bodies, cannibalism, gang rape, or as Auntie Claire Rayner once said, it's any film that happens to be on a video, but it's a film that includes violence, sadism, horror, you know the sort of hammer horror we grew up with aren't nearly as they were mild compared with some of these, things like Killer Driller, horrible titles they've got. I wonder how she felt then about I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, or The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, or the actual Driller Killer, which is the one she seems to be mentioning. Anyway, considering the specifications are so vague, all manner of material was seized, and it's only years later that we're discovering more than just the listed video nasties were seized, just due to the sheer panic that was ravaging the populace, spurred on by power-hungry politicians and alarmist newspapers. This show takes a look at those unsung titles that didn't get their day in the limelight, but they were still either seized or considered just as nasty as the big boys. Today we're talking about animal misnomers. Not exactly a genre, but it's films that have an animal in the title, which give a bit of a false impression of what the film's actually about. I mean, there's no shortage of misleading film titles, like Dances with Wolves being nothing about dancing or wolves, or even Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which has little resemblance to a supernatural paranormal religious horror. We've even covered Killing Birds last year, which was very misrepresentative of what the film was actually about, and that included an animal as well. Today, we cover two such films, which have very different plots to what you'd expect. 1972's Frogs and 1975's Night of the Seagulls. Let's find out what those differences are straight away with George McCowan's Frogs. Photographer Pickett Smith ambles through a forested area in a canoe, snapping pictures of the wildlife and huge amounts of litter and pollution. As he sails into a lake that the stream leads to, Clint and his sister Karen are driving past in a speedboat and fail to spot him, narrowly avoiding him and causing him to go overboard. Feeling guilty, Clint brings him aboard and apologises, while Karen invites him to stay with them for lunch at their mansion as it's a special day. As countless frogs bump around, Pickett is introduced to Clint and Karen's grandfather, Jason Crockett, the family patriarch who, instead of being friendly, chooses to chastise Pickett for taking pictures on his private property. Karen also introduces him to Stuart and Iris, Jason's daughter and son-in-law, Clint's wife, Jenny, and their children, Jay and Tina, as well as Stuart and Iris's children, Martin and Kenneth, and Kenneth's girlfriend, Bella. Pickett discovers that the phone line is dead, but changes into fresh clothes after meeting everyone and joins them outside for lunch, where Jenny and Jason voice their disdain and irritation at the large number of frogs. 
After several family members suggest poisoning them, Pickett voices his concerns for the local wildlife and is then asked by Jason to check out the area for him so he can make an alternative remedy. Pulling him aside later, Jason asks Pickett to look out for a man called Grover, who went out early in the morning to spray the area with poison. Taking the north path, Pickett finds an empty canister of poison with a massive trail of dead frogs, birds, snakes and bugs. Following the path, he comes across an abandoned jeep and a dead body lying in the swamp, which turns out to be Grover, covered in poisonous snakes and bites. As Jenny complains further about the frogs and Iris moans about anti-pollution measures enacted by the government, Butler Charles and Maid Maybell are setting up evening meal, unaware that a snake is hovering above them on a chandelier. Pickett returns and lets Jason know about Grover's body, only to be met with apprehension about telling everyone due to Jason's birthday the next day. As several frogs begin to repeatedly bash into the windows, a scream rings out as everyone heads to the dining room, where Jason pulls out his revolver and shoots the snake dead. Pickett tries to discuss the odd animal behaviour, but Jason dismisses the idea that anything is wrong. Jenny complains further about Jason's ratchety manners to husband Clint, who then reveals that they have to suck up to him in order to receive part of his inheritance. The next day, on the 4th of July, Jason begins his birthday celebrations by employing everyone to help with the decorations, while Jay and Tina set off firecrackers. When the phone line still appears to be down, Jason has Michael drive off to find any downed power lines, who takes his rifle with him. On the way, he spots some birds which he fires at, and leaving the vehicle, he runs off to find his catch, only to shoot himself in the leg and incapacitating him. Suddenly, multiple tarantulas descend from the moss above him, covering him in webbing and moss before attacking en masse and biting him to death. At the house, Iris spots a butterfly and grabs her net to try and catch it, sending Kenneth off to the greenhouse to snip some flowers for a bouquet. As he arrives, countless lizards pour into the place and knock into jars of corrosive liquids. After several are smashed, noxious gases are released, quickly swamping the greenhouse and asphyxiating Kenneth, who fails to get out in time. Bella and Pickett discover his body and let all of the guests know, causing Stuart to leave to try and find Iris. Finding her path blocked by increasing levels of frogs and snakes, Iris abandons her search for the butterfly and runs through the dense bushes, cutting and grazing her arms and legs before falling into a large mud puddle, covering herself in leeches which drain her blood. Managing to remove them, she runs away again and locates her net, where a rattlesnake suddenly strikes and bites her, killing her instantly. Stuart, meanwhile, fails to notice her corpse and wanders nearby a lake where he's attacked by several alligators and eaten. Back at the house, Pickett informs the household of Grover's death concerning Bella, Charles and Maybell enough for them to express their desire to leave. Jason angrily sends them away with Clint to be abandoned on the other side of the lake, adamant that his day will still not be ruined. The trio gather their things and make their escape, while Clint finds the fishing shack completely abandoned, the inhabitants missing. Just as Bella, Charles and Maybell find a still-smouldering campfire nearby, the birds in the air suddenly become violent and descend to the ground to attack them, causing them to run away. As Clint leaves the fishing shack, he realises that a tegu lizard has bitten through the mooring rope and cast the boat adrift, forcing Clint to swim towards it, where he's promptly swamped by water moccasins and bitten to death as he reaches the boat. Jenny sees this through binoculars and runs to the shore to see if she can save him, Descending into the lake, she suddenly gets her foot caught in a muddy shallow and is then subsequently attacked and killed by a giant snapping turtle. Karen, Pickett and Clint's children, Jay and Tina, decide that enough is enough and insist on leaving, while Jason stubbornly refuses to leave in spite of all that's occurred. Running towards a canoe, Pickett and Karen discover Jenny's corpse covered in crabs and subsequently deploy the boat with Pickett holding a gun for protection. The boat suddenly snags on something and shortly after Pickett goes into the water to fix it, he's attacked by several water snakes which he kills with a boat oar. Carrying on, the canoe is then approached by an alligator which Pickett dispatches with the gun. Reaching the other side of the lake, the group find Bella's, Charles's and Maybell's dropped luggage, suggesting that they didn't make it, but they continue onto the road where they find a female passerby in a car. The woman describes her journey as not seeing a living soul for hours, whilst her son Bobby brandishes a giant frog he picked up in camp. 
Back at Jason's home, he sits alone in the dark as the frogs begin to invade the house, breaking through the windows and jumping all over the sitting room. Jason slowly begins to go mad with the tumultuous croaking, imagining that the telephone is ringing and believing his taxidermy is coming back to life. Eventually, he suffers a heart attack and bowls over onto the floor, which becomes a full cardiac arrest as the frogs hop all over his body and the lights in the house suddenly cut out. Frogs attacking windows, snakes and chandeliers. Those aren't exactly normal things, Mr. Crockett. I don't think there's much to worry about. I'm sure I can get the state to spray some pesticides. Yes, sir, I'm sure you can. You can kill a hell of a lot of other things, too. Mr. Smith, that is where you and I part company. I still believe man is master of the world. Does that mean he can't live in harmony with the rest of it? You call that horrible racket out there harmonious? Mr. Crockett, I know it sounds strange as hell, but what if nature were trying to get back at us? <laughs> Nonsense. Then how do you explain it? We just sit and wait. Seems like all I ever do around here is babysit. Hope they don't do something that might annoy him, and they always do. Family. Boy, they don't like me. You. You're out drinking in that speedboat all day and all night. Well, I hate it. It's only a couple of weeks a year. Yes, sir. No, sir. All day long. The only one that matters is him. Well, what about me? Shouldn't your wife come first? Well, now listen to me. I said listen to me. Now that old man is not gonna live forever. And that means a million dollars or more to me. And all we have to do is just play our cards right. I don't think that I can stand Just shut your mouth! The first time I saw Frogs was on the Horror Channel when I was around 13 years old. It was very late at night and my mum had fallen asleep, so I had the opportunity to watch what I wanted. I remember seeing the title and thinking, ooh, Killer Frogs sounds pretty good, so I watched a little bit of it, only really seeing a snake on a chandelier, so I switched it over. I flipped back later, and I found the spider scene, where I was utterly terrified as I hated spiders, so I switched over again. Finally, when I flipped back for the last time, an old lady was running around bumping into snakes, lizards, frogs and leeches before getting bitten by a rattlesnake. I went and watched something else at that point, as I felt I was never going to get the killer frogs that I was expecting. Many years later, of course, with very faint memories of it, and with the advent of the internet, I tracked it down and I bought a copy. And I was right, I was never going to get the killer frogs that I expected. Putting its misleading title aside, Frogs can be considered an ecological horror film which was pretty popular back in the 70s, due to the paranoia of communism and the nature of the Vietnam War. Films which had invisible invaders and unnoticed threats to your life, home and security were pretty rampant, with stuff like Invasion of the Body Snatchers being a prime example. We can all remember horror films with an animal taking front and centre as the antagonist, usually with a pollution-slash-mutation-slash-nuclear-type plot element in place to explain their suddenly violent behaviour. Frogs, however, contrary to its title, is actually part of a subset of these types of films where it's actually multiple species that are attacking. Stuff like 1976's Food of the Gods, in which a mysterious substance bubbling from the earth causes animals to grow in size and become ragingly violent. Or 1977's Day of the Animals, where a depleting ozone layer causes lethal radiation to a menagerie of animals, which then turn aggressive. Frogs is largely similar, though it's notably an earlier entry than most, and it features pollution and pesticides as the reason why the animals go berserk. The plot of Frogs focuses on the Crockett family, who live in a bourgeois estate property, surrounded by nature which they continue to defile with rubbish, chemical waste and toxins, the latter of which is a personal attack on the frog population which are driving the family crazy. 
The family are kind of like stand-ins of the concept of America as a whole, and they seem to symbolise the worst aspects of the American dream, with Jason being the most vile representative. They despise nature and the earth, frequently bitching and moaning about the incessant noise of wildlife, their environmental taxes that they're having to pay, and killing half hundreds of animals using poisons and toxins. Tradition, punctuality, patriotism and power are all stalwart elements of the Crockett family, but in tandem with this are the uglier aspects like greed, self-importance, arrogance and disregard for others. Jason Crockett, or Grandpa as everyone in the family is seemingly forced to call him, is by his own admission one of the ugly rich, and insists on holding his birthday celebration and the 4th of July excitement regardless of what happens on that day. It begs credulity, of course, but it's rather grotesque to see a man so hell-bent on having such control over his family and having his way that even the deaths of several people are little more than a minor annoyance to him, even when one of those is his own grandson. His excuse is that nothing has ever become between his family's traditions before, and that July is a special month because three of his other family members also celebrate their birthday together. It's rather telling, however, that none of these family members, who are present mention their own birthday at all. All the attention of the day is demanded by the despotic patriarch of the family, who, without question, will enforce meal times, the menu items, and even the start of when they can play games. Jason's apparent wealth, power, and dedication to his country is constantly reinforced by the overly elaborate games and decorations that he has for the 4th of July, his dog is adequately named Colonel, and the hundreds of stuffed animals displayed in his study. Apart from the comparatively liberal and caring Pickett, most of the rest of Jason's family also exhibit their own negative representations. Clint is an abusive drunk who's arrogant enough to drive a boat whilst intoxicated and challenges his cousins to games simply so he can humiliate them. He also sucks up to his grandfather constantly, all for the plot of being able to get a major part of his inheritance when he dies. No love lost, of course. He's all about the money. His wife Jenny is rather neglectful of her children with seemingly no control or interest in them and is only interested in complaining about all of her issues. Not only that, but she criticises Clint for his drinking problem only to reach for the bottle herself when the going gets tough. Kenneth spitefully squashes a bug on a plant in the greenhouse saying, you've just had your last free meal on the crockets, which is rather odd to be that selfish. Michael is pretty brusque and dismissive of everyone around him, and his only sojourn into anything different is taking a gun out to shoot at birds. Iris is particularly vocal about her perceived status in the classes of the US. We're entitled to be ugly, Karen. God knows we pay enough taxes. Daddy, did you know that the government is forcing us to put strainers on our paper mills? Costs millions and our dividends will be shot to hell. Coupled with the fact that she has a fascination with catching butterflies and displaying them in her own personal collection means that she's just as elitist in both her fiscal affairs and her relationship with nature. Her husband Stuart is rather ineffectual and simply follows Jason's orders, presumably for the same reason as Clint does. The children, Jay and Tina of course, are rather innocent in the whole thing, but characters outside the Crockett family are also rather noticeably different. Maybell and Charles, Jason's cook and butler respectively, are of course outside Jason's familial circle, but they're still bound by Jason's employment. Their relationship to Jason does lend an uncomfortable edge though that his servants effectively are African-American, especially with the rather colonial conservative portrayal of the Crockett's. This is even mentioned as such by Bella when they begin to suggest that they want to leave, with her explaining, you might not know, but many years ago they actually started letting people be free to make their own decisions. Bella herself, too, is the only one outside of Pickett who is out of Jason's grasp, and for a film from the 70s is a rather independent, strong female character, with a flair for dress design and speaking her mind. I'm pretty sure as well that interracial relationships of the kind that Bella and Kenneth have were also quite rare at the time. As a result of her detachment, though, there's a rather nasty side of Jason's treatment of her that is on the razor edge of seeming racist. He says, someone like you could never understand, and you can leave whenever you want. There's a sly emphasis on you, almost like he wants to say something offensive, but he can't say it out loud. Even the issue of all three African-American characters being thrown out at the same time does have a bit of a dodgy vibe to it. 
There's also Karen, our dotaragonist, who is at least young enough to escape the attitude that most of the family have towards nature, and clearly has enough sense to take care of her niece and nephew when the danger becomes unbearable. Then, of course, we have Pickett, who, apart from flashing as a perfect specimen of beefcake at least twice, is a conscientious wildlife photographer who seems to give a crap enough about the environment to notice that something is actually quite wrong. I'm honestly surprised, though, that he has the patience and understanding that he has. I wouldn't have been able to contain myself with Jason barking his orders. Then, of course, there's the danger itself, and the main crux of the film's entertainment value. As we know from the title, there must be frogs involved, and there are. We do not, however, get killer frogs, but what we do have is our frogs acting, almost like army generals, surrounding the grounds and the house and literally croaking orders, almost like they're the animal counterpart of Jason. Seemingly, as a result of the rampant dumping of toxic chemicals, the frogs have rapidly bred throughout the summer and populated the countryside around the Crockett family in a bid to attack them. Seemingly realising, though, that they have no natural aggressive mechanisms, they instead flood every area near humans and look on while other animals do the attacking for them. This isn't really elaborated on, but considering that the frogs are so omnipresent through the film, I think we're meant to assume that the amphibians are communicating with the other animals in the area in order to attack en masse. Which is a neat idea, if a little bit silly and contrary to the title. Interestingly, there are two different types of frogs featured in this film anyway, specifically the cane toad and the American bullfrog. So, the title frogs is actually kind of a misnomer anyway, in that some of these creatures are actually toads. We do, however, get a deadly and balmy collection of animals that attack our human wastrels. Grover is killed off-screen by venomous snakes, while Michael, in his sadistic activity of randomly shooting at birds, ends up firing at his leg and incapacitating himself. What ensues is quite a bizarre and almost nightmarish scenario of a group of tarantulas descending to him using an inordinate amount of webbing and clumps of Spanish moss. Michael is seemingly swarmed and weighed down by the moss, which is rather implausible as the speed at which these tarantulas cocoon him with the webbing is as well. At the same time, I think I'd be paralysed as well simply from a fear of having so many tarantulas crawling on me, and I think for a lot of other people this situation would also be one of the worst imaginable. As odd and almost fantastical the event is, the short shrift is that Michael is weighed down by webbing and moss before several of the spiders reach his face and bite him enough to kill him. The actual spiders that they used, though, were Mexican golden red rump tarantulas, which are certainly not native to Florida. They are, in fact, though, quite harmless in real life, and they're mostly active at night, but they do have the ability to bite, though non-fatally. To discourage this anyway during the filming, the animal handler stored them in a cooler to slow down their movements, and the actor, David Gilliam, remembers that the experience wasn't so bad as they weren't particularly active when the scene was being shot. The next one to snuff it is Michael's brother Kenneth, who is gassed to death when several lizards knock over jars of chemicals. This scene is also rather implausible, as the greenhouse clears of poisonous gas quite quickly, and it surely would have resulted in some of the lizards dying too. The culprits involved are the tiny tokay geckos, which are actually native to Asia, specifically the Philippines, Indonesia and New Guinea, but the more impressive of the bunch is the Argentine black and white tegu, which is a grand-looking monitor lizard which is native to South America. Despite their sometimes ferocious bite, they are actually quite well regarded by humans and can be domesticated. In fact, they become very docile with their human owners, and they become very attached to us, especially as they get older. Compared to most of the other deaths in the film, which are direct attacks on humans, this is the only death which relies on the theory that the animals are intentionally causing death to humans, but at the same time it could easily be written off as an accident too. The next death is probably one of the more protracted demises on screen, and is the most memorable as a result. The scatty iris goes on an impromptu butterfly hunt, and gets a bit distressed really. She almost strangles herself on a bit of moss, she tears her dress up and lacerates her knees and face with twigs and vines, before stumbling onto rattlesnakes, vipers, frogs, lizards, and she gets herself into a bit of a panic and she begins running before falling into a large puddle of mud, whereby she's swamped by leeches. After this, she painfully pulls them off and in a half-dead daze, she falls down near her net and she's promptly struck by a rattlesnake bite, which instantly kills her and turns her deathly white in just a few seconds. 
I'm not positive which rattlesnakes are used in the film, but it does look like a western diamondback rattlesnake. Just this one section of film goes on for quite some time, and despite her quite grotesque character, you do actually start to feel a little sympathy as she does seem to suffer so much. At the same time, the sequence is so silly and so camp that you also end up giggling at the sheer straight-facedness of it all. You could literally have this one sequence as a standalone short film and just title it A Butterfly Hunt Gone Wrong and have a bit of Benny Hill music running over it. What's even funnier is that Iris was originally meant to die via butterflies, who would lure her into a pit of quicksand where she quickly drowns. It seemed quite silly to the filmmakers, though. Yeah, that's actually what they said, so they changed it to the sequence that we see. I'm glad that they did change it, but the original scene survives pretty much intact in the film's official trailer, so if you did want to see just how silly it looks, be my guest. I've seen it, and it does look pretty ridiculous. Iris's husband, Stuart, is then ripped to shreds in another animal attack, this time via American Alligator. It's laudable that they do use a real alligator for this scene, but it's marred somewhat by the obvious rubber band around the alligator's jaws, and the fact that Stuart seems to be winning the fight, until there's a rough cut to some blood in his limp body indicating otherwise. When the three token black characters decide to leave, they're seemingly attacked Alfred Hitchcock style by birds, but it's one of the more ineffective scenes for me, as it's simply just stock footage superimposed over Charles, Maybell and Bella running away. There's no pecking, there's no blood, and not even a dead body. All we have to suggest their demise is the dropped luggage found later by Pickett and Karen. Considering that Hitchcock achieved a lot more with probably a lot less resources, makes this bit in particular seem quite lazy. Clint is put out of his misery by water moccasin snakes, known in the US as cottonmouths. These snakes are actually quite venomous and they can be quite dangerous, but their aggression is often exaggerated and they tend to bite mostly when they're being touched by inorganic objects, like sticks and mechanical hands. Jenny ends up going into the shallow area of the lake to find Clint and stupidly gets her foot stuck in mud, though in a rather unconvincing fashion. Even more unconvincing is that her demise is at the hands, or jaws, of an alligator snapping turtle. No human deaths have been recorded to have been caused by this particular species, as they're generally not known to bite unless they're severely provoked. And even then, you can only really apparently lose your fingers. But other than that, this turtle can't do much. Whiny Jenny ends up dead anyway to be picked up by the crabs. The final death, however, is caused indirectly by the frogs themselves. Jason, now alone and abandoned by his family, finds his home invaded by the creatures, and his paranoia completely overwhelms him. His faithful dog leaves him at the last minute, and the images of his taxidermy and the incessant ribbiting cause him to fall over, clutching his chest and going into a fatal cardiac arrest. I guess it's poetic, really, though it's a little bit milquetoast that the frogs still don't get a direct kill. While it's probably not intentional, the film does have an incredibly camp and silly vibe, which is kind of contrary to the extended sequences of lingering on the dead victims, the straight-faced delivery of the actors, and the lack of intentional humour in it. For example, the way that Clint acts towards Pickett seems to be just particularly homoerotic. I think it's meant to be macho, but it just comes across as gay, insisting that he goes to his room for fresh clothes and being very tactile with him as they interact. The face-palming stubbornness of Jason, wanting to carry on with his celebrations despite his whole family are dying around him, really beggars belief. And it's hard to not feel that the family are overreacting to the animal attacks either, which, for the most part, seem quite natural. I mean, a snake biting someone who gets near it, or an alligator encroaching on someone entering its habitat. Even the lizards gassing Kenneth to death feels more incidental, despite being more indirect. If it weren't for the calm, controlled manner in which Pickett describes what he feels is going on, the film could be written off as no more than the paranoid feelings of being under attack by animals, by a cantankerous, dotty, out-of-touch rich family, especially as they seem so virulently repulsed by anything naturey. Of course, by the end of the film, it's hinted that the animal attacks are actually spreading everywhere, so I guess you can interpret it any way you like. In conclusion, though, I think the film is certainly entertaining if you're willing to treat it with less of a serious eye than the film seems to give itself. And certainly as a so-bad-it's-good experience with some drinks and friends, it's an absolute hoot. Canadian director George McCowan wasn't really a horror person. Most of his other filmography certainly suggests so. 
He worked on 1970s Run, Simon, Run, uh, The Shape of Things to Come, and the TV show Seeing Things from 1981 to 87. The film was written by Robert Hutchinson, who did very little else, and Robert Blees, who in addition to writing a lot of episodes for American TV, worked on Whoever Slew Auntie Rue and Dr. Fibes Rises Again. Producer George Edwards had worked on American Exploitation Fair before, like Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and Queen of Blood. Another of the producers, Norman T. Herman, had also worked on similar stuff like Bloody Mama, Blackula and Legend of Hell House, while James H. Nicholson, another of the producers, shared the same titles as Herman, but with it, It Conquered the World, The Dunwich Horror and Murders in the Rue Morgue added to his copybook. The rather atonal and synth-heavy soundtrack was done by Les Baxter, whom we've encountered before on the English dub of Black Sunday. The cinematographer was Mario Tozzi, who later went to work on Brian De Palma's Carrie in 1976 and 1980's The Stuntman. The film was edited by Fred R. Freitschans Jr., who'd worked prominently from the 40s and 50s on B-movies like Arctic Fury, The Man from Planet X, Beast of Paradise Isle, and How to Stuff a Wild Bikini. Finally, the special effects and makeup were done by someone familiar, Thomas R. Berman, who did the special effects on My Bloody Valentine and Halloween 3, which we've covered before. The cantankerous Jason Crockett was played by legendary actor Ray Meland, who was a Welshman who fell into acting almost by accident when he was persuaded by a producer to appear in a bit role. He subsequently got massive work from 1934 onwards in stuff like The Lost Weekend, Dial M for Murder, uh, Till We Meet Again, Panic in the Year Zero and Escape to Witch Mountain. Rather humorously, he wore a toupee throughout the whole production, and it got so hot that quite often the toupee was slipping off constantly in between shots. Pickett was played by American honk Sam Elliott, who actually gets his shirtless scenes here enough to have won him the role of Rick in 1976's Lifeguard. Elliott, of course, would become wildly popular due to his charming looks and manner, appearing in Roadhouse alongside Patrick Swayze, The Big Lebowski, 2003's Hulk, The Golden Compass, Ghost Rider, and most recently, The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot, as well as A Star is Born, alongside Bradley Walsh and Lady Gaga. Karen was played by actress Joan Van Ark, who'd appeared in several American soaps like Dallas and uh, Knott's Landing as well. She also, surprisingly, had a voice acting role in the video game Fallout 4. Adam Rourke, who played Clint, had appeared in Hell's Angels on Wheels and Women of the Prehistoric Planet, while Judy Pace, who played Bella, appeared in The Thomas Crown Affair and Cotton Comes to Harlem. Lynn Borden played the whiny Jenny, who'd reappear in Black Mama, White Mama, while Michael was played by David Gilliam, who'd star in The Eagle Has Landed, Severance and Slumdog Millionaire. Stewart was played by George Scaff from The Exorcist II, The Heretic, while Lance Taylor Sr., who played the butler Charles, later popped up in Blackula. Lastly, there was Hollis Irving, or Holly Irving as she's credited here, who played the memorably dotty and harassed Iris, who'd been in several US TV shows like Bewitched, The Incredible Hulk and Charlie's Angels. Frogs was released to incredibly negative reviews. American international pictures were not considered a particularly well-regarded branch of Hollywood, and the reaction that the film got really reflected that. It was released uncut in the UK cinemas in 1972, and then on pre-cert VHS in the UK in 1982, smack dab in the midst of the nasties. It was released by Guild, who'd already released the nasties Terrorize and Foxy Brown, but I very much doubt that Frogs would have got any attention, simply because the film's content is relatively mild. There's a slight smattering of blood, but most of the film's disturbing aspects are from the lingering shots of dead bodies, which isn't necessarily a censorship issue. This version was banned anyway when all pre-cert tapes without a certificate became illegal, and it received an uncut DVD release subsequently in 2005, and it's now been re-released by 88 Films on DVD and Blu-ray later on in 2016. So that was Frogs. Let's hop on and get on with the next film, Night of the Seagulls.
A man travelling at night with his wife is suddenly set upon by unholy Templar knights, who kill him before kidnapping his buxom young wife. They take her to their temple and tie her up, plunging a dagger into a chest, plucking her heart from the cavity and offering it to a bizarre stone statue. Afterwards, the knights dismember her and throw her corpse to the crabs. In the present day, a couple consisting of a Dr Henry and his wife Joan arrive at an old-fashioned coastal town so that Henry can take up the newly available position as the doctor. Finding little response from the villagers, the pair find the doctor's house and meet him, in rather a hurry to leave and claiming that the town do not desire their presence. Henry leaves to walk the doctor to his destination, while Joan is frightened by a face at the window while unpacking. When the front door begins to open, Joan is ready to strike the intruder, but he pleads for mercy, seemingly injured and seeming a little slow. She tends his head wound and allows him to stay the night, where he says that tonight was apparently a special night in the village. Outside, the doctor warns Henry not to get too deeply involved with the villagers, and not to go out at night for any reason before he leaves the village on horseback. Later that night, the village bell tolls as undead revenants begin to emerge from the nearby crypts and graves. The strange sounds prompt Joan and Henry to go out, where they spot hooded figures travelling along the beach with a woman. Figuring it to be a fishing ritual of some kind, they return home as the undead knights gallop on horseback to the beach, where the hooded villagers chain their female victim to the rocks. The knights arrive just as the girl screams, waking Joan from her sleep, but Henry dismisses it as just the seagulls making noise. At the shops the next day, Joan is treated rudely by the shopkeeper who ignores her until a local girl called Lucy helps her out. She offers to help out at Joan's house, but becomes nervous at the mention of the nightly rituals. When the bell tolls yet again, the injured man Teddy expresses fear at the sound, whilst Lucy denies hearing it at all. A sudden knock at the door reveals a scared girl called Tilda who believes that someone wants to take her away, only for the girl's bullish parents to arrive straight away and retrieve her, heading to the beach along with the same lines of hooded people. The knights arrive once more as night falls, this time with Tilda tied to the rocks. Hearing her cries, they cut her bindings and steal her away, taking her to the temple from the opening and repeating the same heart removal before leaving her corpse to the crabs. The next day, Henry and Joan go looking for Tilda, but Teddy suggests that she's gone away. Overhearing what he said, some of the villagers chase Teddy, intending to beat him, while Henry hits a brick wall at Tilda's house, where her father claims that she's left for the city. Teddy is caught by the small mob and pushed off a cliff, hurting him badly. Later on, Joan hears seagulls again, while Lucy answers the door and finds the hooded figures, who take her. As Henry asks for an explanation, Lucy mentions that the village will be restored, only to be hushed and moved away. Deciding to take action, the couple gather lanterns and decide to travel to the nearby city to get help from the authorities until Teddy arrives at the door, injured. Lucy is bound on the beach in the same manner as the other girls, just as Teddy reveals that the Templars rise again for seven nights at this time of year, sacrificing the young girls that the village offers, which turns them into eternally crying seagulls. Henry runs down to the beach to save her and manages to untie her before the ghouls attack. The villagers, suspecting that the ritual will have now failed, flee the town with all their possessions and also Henry's car, leaving Henry, Joan, Teddy and Lucy stranded alone. The horsemen then ride through the town in search of their victims, so Henry barricades the doors and the windows to survive. The knights arrive outside the house and begin to hack and slash at the barricades, eventually gaining access, forcing Joan to defend herself with a flaming torch. Henry too joins in to set fire to one of her assailants, while more knights begin to encroach upon Teddy and Lucy. Teddy is grabbed by several of them, taken outside, and then stabbed to death. The remaining trio then escape through the attic by jumping out of the window onto the roof and then hitching a ride on the Templar's horses, riding away with the undead following the sound of their hooves. Lucy falls from her horse on the way and is caught by the rotting knights, who cut her down in the sea. Henry and Joan end up at the nearby temple, where the horses have taken them, and after Henry surmises that they intend to sacrifice Joan next, decide to destroy the idol with which they offer the hearts to. As the blind dead rise up all around them, the pair struggle to topple the idol until it eventually crumbles as it hits the ground. Instantly, the undead begin to fall down themselves, blood pouring from their skulls. All across the beach, the remnants of the knight's skeletons are strewn all around as the sun rises.
The usual? Yes. Pardon me. Take my order. I'm in a hurry, and I was ahead of this lady. Goodbye. What do you need, Lucy? Will you wait on me? With nothing here you want. You haven't even asked what I want. I see it right there. Please get out. We don't want you here. But this is a public establishment for everyone. Lucy, will you please tell me what you want? I think you should take care of this lady's order. Thank you. I was here first. But it seems they have strange customs here. Such as being rude to those who've come here only to be of service. Such as my husband. Or beating up a poor idiot who's defenseless. Or singing on the beach at night. We don't need your kind around here, or your medicines. Well, if you get sick, you'll change your mind. Would you allow me to carry that? You're not accustomed to all this. Thank you. Well, this one certainly isn't about seagulls, is it? It's actually the fourth film in Amando de Osorio's Blind Dead Tetralogy. Night of the Seagulls is another take on the legend of the undead Knights Templar, although this time it ditches the origin story of Bersano and the knights being hung there. It also ditches the eyes being burnt out by angry villagers in Return of the Evil Dead. You get the picture. Osorio completely wipes the slate clean and has a new story using those same beloved undead revenants. Seemingly because the audience seemed familiar with his series antagonists, Osorio gives us a new tale set in a suitably decrepit and backwards coastal village, which looks more run down than your average Iron Age ruin. In a breakaway from the first film at least, the legend of the knights is now that they appear from the sea, apparently, to encroach upon this very quiet village, demanding a ver female virginal sacrifice to sate their centuries-old bloodlust, and they offer a heart to a completely unchristian-looking statue. It's a little bit more fairy tale and Lovecraftian in its execution, the legend going that every seven years for seven consecutive nights, the town's church bells will inexplicably ring out to signal the knight's arrival on horseback at night, whereupon the villagers will chain their sacrifice to the rocky cairns of the beach and await their doom. The sacrifice victims then reportedly become seagulls, who perpetually cry during the knight's arrival at nightfall in large flocks, hence the meaning of the title. It's rather a return to the simple plot of the first film, while the second and third films tried to branch out a little in terms of the ideas. I do feel it's quite fitting, though, the series now returning to its roots in a poetically quiet curtain call. That's not to say that it's a whimper, however. There are certainly a lot of elements to enjoy, despite the action being a lot more low-key. From the very start, the film establishes our villains with the kind of Spanish panache that you just have to love. They cut a nobleman down and kidnap his extremely buxom wife before taking a leaf from Lenzi's Nightmare City, gratuitously exposing her breasts and slicing her open before doing a Temple of Doom-style heart removal. Well, how can you resist a film like that? It then flashes to present day, well, the 70s anyway, to one of the most effectively creepy and dire places I think I've ever seen in a horror film. The unnamed village really feels like it should be abandoned, lacking any modern amenities, looking incredibly unsafe and being one of the most depressingly drab areas of human inhabitation that I've ever seen. I actually felt cold and lonely just looking at the houses, the furnishings and the pathways of the place. Then we're introduced to our characters, Henry and his wife Joan, 
who seem plain and ordinary enough, but it's their welcome and reaction by the other villagers which makes this so stark. The newcomers are essentially ignored completely, with only fleeting glances of disdain. Henry seems to have his head screwed on, and in an earnest sort of way, tries to be decent enough to help these villagers who are ignoring him. Apart from Joan's propensity to trust complete strangers whom she's literally just met, by offering them sanctuary, medical treatment and even employment, she seems like the stereotypical damsel, really. It's a bit of a peg down from the original's more independent bet, especially in the final sequence where Joan is degenerated to the point of going limp and refusing to escape her attackers and whinging, just leave me, I can't go on, I can't. I mean, nothing new for the 70s, of course, but it's a little disappointing when the female lead of the first one was stronger, and by the fourth, a mere stereotype of hysteria. Lucy has very little personality other than being a villager who talks a little more than normal, enough so that she gets a job working for Henry and Joan as a hired help. Teddy, on the other hand, is the village idiot, but he has a role rather similar to that of Florinda Balkan in Don't Torture a Duckling. Both of them are considered outcasts by a conservative, isolated village community, and both are attacked by said villagers when they sense that something is going on. In Don't Torture a Duckling, of course, this is fatal, whilst in Night of the Seagulls, it's not. And Tilda, despite being named, is no more explored than the film's opening lady victim, and the truth of the matter is, the film has a very small dra dramatist persona, simply because it's a much more basic affair. At the same time, your attention being lavished on just a few characters aids the film's rather bleak and isolated atmosphere, augmented by the usual thick pervasive fog and the same musical tones as the first few films in the series. The blind dead themselves have also undertaken slight changes to their portrayal, as they seem to hunt via only sound during one scene, while the rest of the time they seem to be perfectly capable of tracking their victims in the same way as most zombies do. They now only return for seven nights every seven years, as opposed to the regularly nightly visits of the first film. And they also seem to have gained their cadaverous steeds back too, after their absence from the third film, The Ghost Galleon. They also seem to have stopped their blood-drinking rituals, and the plot point of them requiring a sacrifice's heart to offer to their god seems a lot more akin to a fantasy ghost tale than anything else. Still, we do get the obligatory home invasion aspect when their laces ceremony fails, and it ventures a little into Night of the Living Dead territory when Henry decides to barricade himself and his family into their house. In fact, this scene in particular seems to have inspired a scene or two in Andrea Bianchi's burial ground much later, especially as Joan resembles one of the characters from that film. They still employ their sword play as well when they can, cutting both Teddy and Lucy down in their prime, and they move with a combination of shambling slowly and shuffling quickly. One of the weaknesses of the film for me, though, however, is that there's quite a noticeable insertion of stock footage from the first film, both in showing the dead rising from their graves and their riding atop their horses. It doesn't interrupt the film too much, but for fans of the series, it's hard not to notice this reuse of material. While it is rather by the numbers and quite linear, the film does excel at giving us quite a pacey but simplified ghost story, which is packed full of the expected creepy tropes. The blood of virgins, a bell that tolls and signals the approach of undead skeletal knights, uh, souls becoming eternally pained seagulls who flock at night, a village's dirty secret, insane paranoia and mistrust of strangers. It all combines to be a quite punchy piece of horror, even if it's not terribly original. Speaking of the H.P. Lovecraft themes, though, the film's narrative does seem to be based somewhat on his book, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. In the book, a man investigates a coastal fishing town in Massachusetts whose villagers are incredibly suspicious of strangers who frequently disappear in the area. He soon discovers that the whole town worship creatures known as Deep Ones, who emerge from the sea and reward them with riches if they offer human sacrifices, using deadly force if they refuse. Apart from the obvious story similarities, other aspects of the book make it into the film, such as the narrator having to hide from the Deep Ones when they suddenly mount a hunt for their stranger. Others are more subtle, like Teddy's peculiar walking style, which is referencing the villagers in the book who are slowly transforming into Deep Ones and walking strangely as a result. Apart from these spooky influences and genuinely bleak feeling, the film also boasts a few sequences of bloody mayhem, mainly in the opening with a rather graphic heart removal. 
The same thing happens later too with Tilda, but it kind of misses the money shot itself, allowing us to instead molly over her resultant chest wound while crabs sidle over her. We have some mild gore as well when Teddy's beaten up and thrown off a cliff and is then stabbed by his living dead attackers, but it's not particularly gruesome in these parts. Lucy is killed too in a pretty bloodless fashion, being hacked down with swords. But the finale of Henry destroying the blind dead's totem results in them falling to the ground evil dead style and disintegrating with copious amounts of blood flowing from their hollowed skulls. It's bloody, sure, but it's not the goriest. The opening heart removal is probably the most graphic scene in the whole movie, but at least there are scenes like that here, and it doesn't detract from the very effective subtleties that the film does have to offer. As spooky zombie ghost tales go, you could certainly go for a lot worse than this. I mean, John Carpenter's The Fog, it isn't, but it's also no Jaws the Revenge either. And it just feels like a natural winding down conclusion in almost every way to Amando de Osorio's infamous eyeless undead saga. Joan was played by Spanish actress Maria Costi, who'd previously been in The Killer with a Thousand Eyes and Vengeance of the Zombies. She'd subsequently appear in the Giallo film A Dragonfly for Each Corpse. Lucy was played by Sandra Mazarovsky, who was a Moroccan-born actress who'd had a small appearance in the video nasty Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, as well as 1977's Hitler's Last Train. Very tragically, however, she died later that year in 77, at the young age of just 18, meaning she was a mere 16 years old when she actually appeared in Night of the Seagulls. Javier de Rivera, who played the unnamed Doctor, also cropped up in a dragonfly for each corpse, whilst Susan Estrada, who played the well-endowed opening victim, cropped up in 1975's Blood and Passion. That's pretty much it, though, for the cast. It was a notably smaller production than its earlier entries. We know Amando de Osorio by now, as we've already covered his first foray into blinded zombie territory with Tombs of the Blind Dead. The producer, however, was someone new, Jose Angel Santos, who worked as a production assistant on Return of the Evil Dead, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and Night of the Sorcerers. Returning, however, was J.A. Geiner, who worked on Tombs of the Blind Dead, as well as The Werewolf and the Yeti, one of the DPP's video nasty titles. Anton Garcia Abril's soundtrack from the first couple of films is utilised again here without any changes, while the cinematography was done by Francisco Sanchez, the same guy who worked on Vengeance of the Zombies and Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Editor Pedro Del Rey had worked on various films like Death Walks on High Heels and The Legend of Blood Castle, while the film's special effects were done by Osorio himself. He was assisted, however, by Luis Criado, who worked on The Blood-Spattered Bride and The Horror of the Zombies, as well as Pablo Perez, who worked on Horror Express, Maniac Mansion, and Lucio Fulci's White Fang. The film was released to little fanfare in its native Spain, but fans of the Blind Dead series around the world were probably pretty happy when the English dubbed version was exported. The film skipped the UK cinemas in its entirety, but it did get an uncut release from Archer on VHS in the early 80s. Now, Archer were a very small operation that didn't last particularly long, so much so that their version was actually redistributed in a different VHS cover after Archer went under. Considering the film was such a small release, it's rather surprising then that it turns out that this is another of those odd, non-nasty films that was confirmed to have been seized by the police. Yes, folks, Night of the Seagulls was seized by the police, Specifically, it's mentioned during several raids in Greater Manchester as being listed as seized during February of 1985. Now, despite being enacted in 1984, the Video Recordings Act wasn't valid until the September 1st of 1985 because the government were giving the BBFC enough time to classify each film on the market. Despite the film being much more of a subtle experience than the other zombie films of its time, it's actually not too difficult to see why this one was probably seized by the police. Firstly, the VHS cover commits the same cardinal sin as Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, featuring a collage of screenshots from the film, two of which show the violent scenes. Secondly, the scenes of violence in the film tend to involve a partially nude female victim being stabbed in the chest, with their heart being removed. And while only the opening one is particularly visceral in execution, both of them feature a scene afterwards of the corpse, with the breasts still exposed, with blood all over them. 
Now, the BBFC had a major problem with blood on breasts, warranting sensor cuts in every scenario where this image occurred. Lastly, some alternative titles of Night of the Seagulls were Don't Go Out at Night and Blood Feast of the Blind Dead. Now, Blood Feast, of course, was one of the video nasties already, and the DPP seemed to take issue with blood in the title of anything, as they'd already pointed the finger at Bloodbath, Blood Feast, Blood Rites, Bloody Moon, Bloodlust and Blood Song. For the same reason, Don't Go Out at Night would have attracted attention too, as the DPP had a similar issue with titles beginning with Don't, like Don't Go in the Woods, Don't Go in the House, Don't go, don't Look in the Basement, Don't Go Near the Park, Don't Open the Window, which was on the nasties list as The Living Dead, and also Don't Answer the Phone. Now, regardless of the reason, no prosecution was brought against the film ultimately, but it still became lost in the void of the Video Recordings Act, where any preset tapes that didn't have a classification instantly became illegal. And it hasn't received a release in the UK since, so it really does need a bit of restoration and re-release here in the UK. It's available on uncut Region 1 DVD from the US as part of Blue Underground's Complete Blind Dead saga. So, that's the show for this week, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. As usual, if you've any feedback on these films, do get in touch via Twitter and Facebook. I'd love to hear what everyone else's views are on it. We did have a chap called Raymond Gibson on Twitter who said that if he had to pick just one Blind Dead film, it would be Night of the Seagulls. And I do see what you mean. It's a more subtle film with enough of the charms and gore to be quite an endearing little chiller. Gorblimey, who's another user on Twitter, has only seen The Ghost Galleon and he found it unintentionally hilarious. Well, Gore, most of these exported English-dubbed films come across as hilarious and campy because of that distancing effect that they have. But as much as they end up being less effective horrors, I think that they have a charm all their own and they earn a special place in our hearts as a result. There's certainly not that many mainstream horrors that give you that charming, humorous, fuzzy feeling to go with extreme gore and violence. For the next two weeks as we get close to Christmas and New Year, we're tackling something not particularly festive, actually, nor something that will probably be to everyone's taste. We're going to be focusing on some women in prison flicks. Now, more details next week on that subgenre, of course, but next week's episode is focused on two for the price of one, which is a phenomenon not really seen nowadays, in which a film is made and released with the intention of cannibalising it for stock footage, shooting some additional scenes and then remarketing it as a completely different film. Next week, we're covering two films that were shot back-to-back with two of the infamous video nasties, using quite a bit of the stock footage as a result. We had Women Behind Bars on the nasties list, so we're covering Barbed Wire Dolls, which Jess Franco shot at the same time with the same sets and actors. We also had Hell Prison, or Escape from Hell, on the nasties list, so we're covering Hotel Paradise, which again makes liberal use of the former's stock footage. Until then, however, take care of yourselves, and I'll speak to you again shortly. Bye! (laughs) 